Many years ago, I was an undergraduate at the University of Sheffield studying biblical history and literature. And the Old Testament lecturer was a very interesting character with a sharp sense of humour and a sharp dress sense, sporting a beard and a brightly coloured tie. In fact, with the wonders of the internet, I clicked his name on this week and I discovered that 40 years on, he still has a beard and a brightly coloured tie. Just imagine for a moment, at his second lecture that I attend, he looks out into the lecture room, and some of your students can picture this more readily than others, and he notices that I'm wearing a jacket that is very like his, and a brightly coloured tie that looks somewhat like his. And as he looks a little more closely, he notices I haven't shaved for a week. And over the next few weeks, he discovers that I'm growing a beard that looks remarkably like it. And suppose one day there's a knock at his door, and there I am standing at the door, and I say to him when he opens it, Hello, I'd like to come in and see where and how you live. And maybe I could move in and live with you and your family. Well, you'd be glad to know this didn't happen. But if it had, what do you think he might have said after calling for a doctor or the police? Well, he would probably have explained to me that this wasn't appropriate behaviour for a student. And he would be exactly right. It isn't an appropriate behaviour for a student but it is appropriate behaviour for a disciple. Now, a follower of Jesus is not just a student, but a disciple. Because the goal of a disciple is not just to gain information from his master or teacher, but to become like his master by being with his master. And there's a whole world of difference between being a student and being a disciple. One that sadly some Christians have still not learned. Now this introduces our focus this morning as we continue our 40 Days of Purpose program. If you were here two weeks ago, our first and primary purpose was worship. You were planned for God's pleasure. You were made primarily for a relationship with God, made possible only through His Son, Jesus Christ. Then if you were here last week, and you can listen to all this on the internet if you've missed any part of the series, our second purpose reminded us that this vertical relationship with God brings us into a horizontal relationship with all the other people who have that same relationship. And we focused on fellowship. You were formed for God's family. Now today we come to our third purpose, discipleship, that together we follow Jesus Christ in order to become like Jesus Christ. That's our theme, discipleship, you were created to become like Christ. One of the best-known verses in the New Testament that Christians often quote for comfort, and it's a wonderful verse, is Romans 8, 28. I won't ask you to quote it, but I guess many of us who've been Christians sometime could. 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'm pretty sure if I asked all the people who knew this verse to put their hands up, quite a few hands would drop if I said, go on and quote what follows. Romans 8, 29, which says, listen carefully, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan in forming a family is that its siblings might become like Jesus. The good that God works in us, the purpose that he has planned for us, is to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, to become like Jesus. So how does that happen? Well, it's called discipleship. We become like Christ through being with Christ and Christ's people in an intimate relationship with him, not that of a student, but that of a disciple. And I simply want this morning, as we do this, focus on this this morning, as we read through uh, the 40 Days of Purpose book and as we focus on this in our small groups, I want to just touch on the theme of what it means to be a disciple. So let's start where we should always start. Not with the disciple, but with the master. I want to say three things this morning, so here's the first one, all right? And these are not exhaustive. There are many other things you could say about being a disciple. Okay, here's the first one. Being a disciple means responding to the call of Christ. How did Jesus recruit his first followers? Did they volunteer? Did he give out papyrus flyers, advertising lectures on the Sermon on the Mount, weekdays from 2 till 4? No, he called individuals personally to follow him. And the reading we read in Mark's Gospel describes those first followers in Mark 1, 16 to 20. Jesus is beginning his public ministry around the age of 30. He's about to recruit the key people who will form his team, his disciples. In in those days when he lived, conventionally, disciples chose their teacher. There were all sorts of teachers offering all sorts of things, and you picked one that you liked and decided to follow him. With Jesus, the opposite is true. He takes the initiative and calls people to follow him. What is really surprising, and we're so used to it that we don't notice it, what is really surprising is the kind of people that Jesus calls and still calls. Unlikely choices. Look again. As he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew, two fishermen. Come follow me, he said, and I'll make you fish of men. Went a little further. He saw another pair of fishing brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. Jesus called ordinary, uneducated people. Unpromising material. And if you look at the full list, later on in Mark's Gospel, he he gives us the full list of the names of these twelve that he called. It's in Mark 3. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. 
Let me read to you uh, an imaginary letter which I read once. I think I quoted once before, but it's worth repeating again. Someone imagined that this letter was sent to Jesus around the year AD 30. It was discovered. It's imaginary, all right? This is what it says. Thank you for submitting the CVs of the 12 men you've picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our tests. We've arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychiatrist and vocational aptitude consultant. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education and vocational aptitude for the kind of enterprise you are undertaking. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot definitely have radical leanings. One of the candidates, however, has great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places, he's highly motivated, ambitious and responsible. We recommend, as your controller and right-hand man, Judas Iscariot. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Well, the venture was successful with the unpromising candidates that Jesus chose. You see, what was vital was not their ability, but their availability, which is seen in their unconditional obedience when Jesus calls them. At once they left their nets and followed him. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed them. Jesus called them and they responded immediately without hesitation and followed now, not everyone in the Gospel accounts responded so positively or so immediately. For example, in his Gospel, Luke tells a story about a man who Jesus called, who put it off for a time and said, I'll come later. The Gospels record the story of a rich young executive who found the cost of following Jesus too high. Vast crowds heard Jesus call people to follow him, but very few took up the challenge, especially when they realized the cost that was involved. As Jesus put it in one of those parables, the parable of the great wedding banquet, lots of the people who were invited made excuses and didn't come. And he concluded with those famous words, many are called or invited, but few are chosen. And those who are chosen, not exclusively, but largely, who respond to the call of Christ, they continue to be people drawn from unpromising material. People who made it the church of Jesus Christ. The word, the word church in the New Testament is an interesting word. It's the word ekklesia, from which we get ecclesiastical in English. Ekklesia simply means in Greek, called out. In other words, called out of something. Called to follow. The church is a group of people who are called out. So, for example, the church in Corinth, was drawn from very unpromising material. And the Apostle Paul, writing his first letter to them, reminds them of this in chapter 1. He says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the, ho- he chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, things that are not. Why? To nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And churches are groups of people, local families of God, made up of people who have been called to follow his son Jesus and who have responded to that call. And it's good news for all of us. You may think yourself this morning, I'm pretty unpromising material. But God can use you as he used these 12 disciples, as he used the Christians in Corinth. And remember that we are called together. Often, something you don't think about very often, but Jesus chose 12 disciples. Some of us have gone to small groups, maybe for the first time in these past three weeks. It's an interesting exercise, isn't it? It's a whole different dynamic, just you and Jesus you and Jesus and me and you and you and you and a small group of us as we get to know one and are a bit better. We're disciples together, plural, following Jesus together. But we need to respond personally to the call of Christ. So, this is the end of the first point, but I simply ask you this morning, have you responded to the call of Christ? I don't mean have you been coming to church. don't mean you try to read the 40 days of purpose or even join a small group or whatever. Have you personally responded to the call of Jesus Christ to follow him? To repent, which means to leave behind the old life, and to follow Christ. That's the first step. Okay, here's the second step. Being a disciple, secondly, means obeying the teaching of Christ. Obeying the teaching of Jesus. In a survey recently undertaken by BBC News 24, November last year, 67% of the British population described themselves as Christian and said that they backed the idea of a Christian society. I think that's quite heartening and encouraging. And churches and Christians should certainly make the most of that. But I suspect that a far smaller percentage of those who say this have ever seriously read what Jesus actually said and taught. And I'm absolutely convinced that if they did, a far smaller percentage would accept what Jesus taught. Now, my reason for saying this is that I'm not against the world and everything in it. I simply say this because when Jesus was on earth, when he taught and preached, only a tiny percentage of people accepted what he, what he said. Or they were attracted by his miracles. But when he began to explain what they meant, they were offended by what he said. John records in his Gospel in chapter 6, an amazing day, well, an amazing couple of days, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 men plus women and children. It's a lot more than 5,000. And imagine that day, miraculous day, the crowds were around. It seemed like Jesus was the most popular person in the world. And it's a a fascinating account. We don't have time to look at all of it. You start in the beginning of John 6. It starts with thousands of people crowding around. You you imagine a church like this multiplied by about 10 or 15 times. Wow! By the end of John 6, by the end of the day, everyone has given up and deserted Jesus except the handful of people that he chose and called. Why? What, What was the big turn off? 
Well, what was the big turn-off? was the hard teaching of Jesus. It's the end of John 6, verse 16. On hearing it, that's what Jesus said. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? What was it so hard? What, what didn't they like? Well, it wasn't the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the, the multiplication of bread and fish. It was when Jesus began to explain what it meant. They were offended by the unique claims of Jesus. Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and still you don't believe. What? That I am who I claim to be. And added to this were the uncompromising demands of Jesus. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. And when people heard this, he said, Ooh, that's too hard. I'm awake. Don't mind the miracles. Don't mind being fed miraculously. But that's too much. It's a hard teaching. And almost everything that Jesus said is hard. Give a thought about that. Again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you just kind of take, it's kind of passe, isn't it? But you just, just read the New Testament and take seriously what Jesus said about himself. What Jesus said about heaven and what Jesus said about hell, which he spoke about a lot more than heaven. You read what Jesus said about divorce and marriage. Pretty tough in our day to accept that kind of stuff. And almost everything Jesus said was radical teaching and countercultural. And even more so in our day as we drift further and further from the moorings of the Christian faith on which our, which our culture was based. But the condition Jesus demands of his followers is that we hold to his teaching. Not just that we obey it, but we continue to obey it. Now, later on in John's Gospel, some very interesting words in John chapter 8. And Jesus talks about the mark of genuine discipleship. This is, is very interesting words. To the Jews who had believed in him. Jesus said, if you hold on to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, what do you mean free? We're Jews. We're children of Abraham. We're free. And Jesus said, no, you're not. You're slaves to sin. And they said, no, we're not. Our father is Abraham. And Jesus said, no, your father is the devil. And guess what? They didn't like it. In fact, they picked up stones to try and kill him at the end of the story. You see, they started to follow, but when faced with the teaching of Jesus, they drew back and rejected him. Now, it's possible for us to do the same. Some of you will know, because at least two people in the church bought big boxes for me. I like licorice all sorts. This is not a hint, by the way. I've got plenty at the moment. I don't like those brown ones. But I like most of the rest. And I'm not too keen on coconut, but I like those little blue and red ones, you know, with the little, oh, I don't know, you, you know, in licorice ulcers. But that's okay. My family can have those. Now, there are some people treat the teaching of Jesus like that. They've got a pick-and-mix approach. Oh, I like that bit. Oh, it's really good. But... I was reading today, and hmm, I'm not so sure about that. And really? Did Jesus really say that? Must mean something different. Well, anyway, I'll just ignore it and carry on. 
But you see, if you're to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to hold on to his teaching. Hard though it may be. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, yet never have any difficulty with what Jesus taught, then I would suggest you haven't really read it or heard it or understood it. So let me ask you, has your discipleship ground to a halt? I'm always interested when people stop either going to church or say they've stopped being Christians. It's my experience, and it's not always the case, but my experience is there's nearly always a moral issue which causes them to stop. It's not some big philosophical, theological thing. It may be. But more than often, I find it's a moral issue which they found too difficult and they stopped obeying the teaching of Jesus. Now, if you're to be a disciple of Jesus and to continue to hold on to his teaching, you need to obey his teaching. Now, you might say, why should I? Well, Jesus himself said. What is the motive for obedience? Later on in John's Gospel, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. If you love Jesus, you'll do what he says. The motivation for obedience is love for God, Father and Son, and there's no contradiction between the two. And in that obedience in intimate relationship, in a love relationship with Father and Son, we become like the Father and like His Son. That's why discipleship means we're created to become like Christ. But when we disobey, something interesting happens. The work of transformation, conformity to Christ's Son, grinds to a halt and it rapidly starts to go in reverse. So what about you? And I ask myself the same question, what about me? Are we holding on to the teaching of Jesus? Or are we embarrassed by some of the things Jesus said? Prefer not to mention them. Jesus warned about the danger of this. Again in Mark's Gospel. He said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Mark 8, 38. It's that important. Me and my words. So, first step in discipleship is respond to the call of Jesus. Second is obeying the teaching of Jesus. Here's the third and final step. We need to move on. Becoming a disciple means following the example of Jesus. If you are a student, you could learn math from a bigamist or philosophy from a terrorist. And in fact, you probably wouldn't even know whether your lecturer was either of those things. That's the way it is if you're a student. But if you are a disciple, things are very different. For you learn not only from what your master teaches, but also how he lives and puts into practice what he teaches. What he preaches. That was one of the main criticisms Jesus made of the religious leaders of his day. He's warned the people they should practice what they preach. This is Matthew 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat as teachers. So you must, Jesus says, yeah, obey what they say. So obey them. Do everything they tell you. 
but do not do what they do, for they don't practice what they preach. In contrast, Jesus took these 12 people, these 12 men, and he said, you follow me, you live with me, 24-7, for what turned out to be three years, in intimate relationship with me, watch everything I do, and follow me, and imitate it. As I put my preaching into practice. Now, you could look at this from almost anywhere in the Gospel accounts. Uh, but let me focus on one thing, and Colin will be developing it, God willing, this evening as we come around the Lord's table. One feature of the life of Christ that his disciples are called to follow is to live a life of selfless service. There's a passage in Mark 10, and again, you need to go home and read the full passage. Uh, but it, it describes how these 12 disciples, like lots of people in church today, including me, we tend to fall out with one another and we jostle for position. And the disciples going along the road, and each one of them wants to be number one in the group. Yeah, Jesus got 12 disciples, but who's number one? You know, if this was disciple idol, you know, who would get the casting vote, you know? And so two of them decide to make a preemptive strike along with their mother, Luke tells us. Wonderful account. And they go to Jesus and say, Master, when you come into your kingdom, uh, I'd like my boys to have number one and two position on your right and left hand side. The other ten hear about it. And when they hear about it, they're really upset. Because they say to James and John, how could you be so unchristlike? No, they're really upset because they didn't get him first. And Jesus turns to them and says, the way you're behaving is typical of the way of the world. People use power for personal preferment, the abuse of authority. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, their high officials exercise authority over them. But Jesus said, you're to be different. You're to be like a servant in the house or even a slave who has no rights. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he says, that is what I am going to do and I'm doing. Follow my example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus didn't just teach this in theory, he put it into practice. I was struck by this. Here's Jesus on the night when he's about to be betrayed. He knows what awaits him. He's going to be crucified the next day. And he says to his disciples, let's meet together for a final meal. It's what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, and we'll celebrate it this evening, and I hope you'll be here. And they come in from the busy streets, dirty and dusty, and what happens? Well, they all queue up and volunteer to be the servant. No, not at all. Jesus takes off his outer cloak, puts a towel around his waist and he gets a bowl of water and he goes around one by one and washes their feet. Then he says to them, this is a lesson you should learn. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he concludes by saying, it's not what you know, it's what you do. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. And as we follow the example of Jesus, the life of selfless service 
So we experience God's blessing. So here's the question. How are we getting on with one another? Do we want to be first? Prominent? Or are we a church of disciples of Jesus who live lives of selfless service? Putting ourselves last and others first. Are we reflecting the character of Jesus in this way? It's costly business and we'll think about it in more detail this evening. Let's just wind up and conclude what we've been thinking about. We began with the calling of those first disciples when Jesus said, come follow me. He also made a promise to them using words that fishermen were familiar with. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, three years on, the evening of Jesus' betrayal. He's still trying to teach them what it means to be followers, disciples. Within a couple of hours, he'll be betrayed by one of them and abandoned by all the rest. Now, the question I ask you is, does it look likely, if the Gospel record stopped here, does it look likely that they're going to pass their discipleship, they're going to get their discipleship diploma? Does this project not look like a failure after three years? Does it not look like Jesus had failed to do what he promised? He said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Humanly speaking, yes. But history tells a different story. And the reason was that Jesus kept the promise that he made to his disciples after his resurrection, before he returned to heaven. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the promise was fulfilled, the Holy Spirit was given, poured out upon these disciples. And these same men, filled with the Holy Spirit, went out into the streets and into the world and they offered the promise of the Holy Spirit to everyone who would respond to their message. Peter replied when people asked, what should we do now? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and me and you. For your children, for all who are afar off, that's us. Miles away at this time, spiritually, geographically, in every other way. For all whom what? The Lord our God will call. God is still calling people to be his disciples. Yeah? And he's given us the Holy Spirit who issues the call. He's given us the Holy Spirit who enables us to obey the teaching of Christ and to understand it. He's given us the Holy Spirit to equip us to be examples, to follow and lay down our lives as Jesus Christ did. But it requires our response. As we respond, so increasingly we will become like Jesus Christ. That's what God intended. That's his purpose. Discipleship. You were created to become like Christ. Let's pray together.